Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Welcome to In the Know, KO, Kevin O'Connor, and to me, most famous, of course, for starting DoubleClick, the most important company, certainly of the era, and probably one of the most important companies in the world. I think that internet advertising has changed everything. Uh, Did I leave you speechless? Uh, you did. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't sure I was supposed to respond to that. It was very kind of you to say, but uh, I often get accredited as or blamed for being the guy that did the pop-up ad, which is not true. I despise the pop-up ad just as much as uh, everyone does. But yes, advertising is pretty important. Let's get to that moment. I mean, you were just complaining that you hate New York, which I can certainly understand and sympathize with having perhaps acclimated in my entire life to this place. I, I'm cool with it. But you didn't start in New York. No, we started in a basement in uh, Alpharetta, Georgia, outside Atlanta. Are you from Georgia? I'm not. I'm from uh, Detroit area originally. Yeah. Give me the story. How did it happen? Where'd you come from? A small town. Well, not a small town, but a town outside Detroit. The University of Michigan, electrical engineering. I was going to go get my PhD. Last semester, I started a company with an old buddy, Bill Miller, called uh, ICC. Why did you pick internet advertising? I mean, I, I remember, and I was with a company, it was 1996, that claims to have invented the animated or interactive, actually, interactive banneret. And uh, in 1996, this company called Sonata, backed by Fred Wilson's earlier venture firm, Flatiron Partners, I think was building on the standardized banner format and decided to put some Java in there and uh, let you drag your mouse around and play a little game of paddle or oh, pong yeah. or whatever. Uh, inside your browser for HP, I think was our first customer. And I was like an intern or something. So I was around. And at that moment, I never asked myself the question how much of the world this would change, nor why were we doing it, just that it was a pretty cool technology mm -hmm. and it seemed neat. And it seemed a little better than those, the annoying ads that were just more static and didn't do anything. And it seemed like, a, like an improvement to make it interactive, or even the animated ones seemed like improvements. I think in the years to come, people have had different opinions about that. But, you know, I was sort of there, and I had this kind of beginner's mind about the consequences that came long after. And I, I don't mean anything you know, terribly <laughs> weighty by the consequences. I just mean the industry changed so much. And I wonder what was in your mind. Did you have a vast and powerful vision for how it would all change, or, or did you start with a toy? I mean, we started, Dwight Merriman and I, we wanted to start a company. Uh, we were working at it full time. Uh, we really started with brainstorming a whole bunch of ideas of process that I describe in my book. And it, it actually now is a product called teamstormit.com, just how to invent new product ideas. But um, you know, we wanted to create a whole bunch of different ideas and then choose which one was best. We were pretty sure that the internet was going to be a major technology disjoint. And the feeling is that when disjoints come around, uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to to build a new company because the incumbent players don't really have any kind of advantage. If anything, they probably have a disadvantage. What else uh, was around? 30-minute pizza delivery? or <laughs> No, it was probably like, probably information. I was really intrigued with CD-ROM uh, um, information sources, but I can't even remember. We got the list. The list of ideas actually in the book, Map of Innovation. You must but, have uh, had like package software as, a, as an idea. Yeah, exactly. Make a computer, like a different kind of gadget. Maybe exactly. in the ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, it was all computer related. But, you know, the Internet we thought was going to be really large, big, important. And we're just trying to think of, you know, how do people, you know, this is the early days. There was no revenue model. Like, how would people make money? And we brainstormed a bunch of ideas around that. 
One idea that we didn't pursue, uh, I'd come up with the idea of doing basically a job board, think of Indeed or Monster. But uh, when I talked to a bunch of VP of HR at companies, uh, they just looked at me like, why would I ever do that? <laughs> so I abandoned that. <laughs> and then, you know, the original product idea was actually to do a, a subscription network. You know, we thought there'd be a thousand publisher net, uh, sites on the, on the internet and that, you know, sort of one subscription, kind of like a cable TV package. Or the way subscription copy- to news and information. Exactly. Media, yeah. Which I guess is an idea whose time has still not come. It's so kind of around the I corner. S- I still think it's a good product idea. Um, but we kind of pivoted that. Dwight had the, the insight to say, you know what? Most media companies, advertising is bigger than subscription. So that was kind of the basis of the idea. Uh, so the origin point was, let's do something for media companies. Let's try to sell them on our new like subscription service. One click, everybody gets through everything or double click to get through everything. You're in conversations with these dudes and they're like, eh, not feeling it. And you're thinking, well, okay, here's another way I can pay you. Let me stick an ad on your page. Yeah, just looking at the you know, analogy of all other, you know, whether it's print or radio, TV, you know, advertising is was dominant. There yeah. was one problem, though. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't know anything about advertising. So <laughs> no one ever does. <laughs> if you knew too much, you wouldn't have started it, I guess. No, I mean, the interesting thing was that, you know, we got books on direct response and on brand advertising. And we realized that, especially on the, on the brand advertising side, all the theory, you know, sort of reach and frequency and the complicated models they had to use that we could actually do that very exactly. So the concepts are pretty simple, but the implementation on traditional media was so hard to do and understand. So we were pretty excited when we uh, said, yeah, we can do all that. Was the plan in the beginning to get a million dollars of revenue or 10 million or a hundred? Well, we knew it was going to be big. We knew the internet was going to be very important. Uh, I think our original forecast, our business plan, show there was going to be 100 million people using the internet like in 10 years, uh, which is a big number. And people people look at that and say, you're smoking too much weed. There's no way anyone's going to uh, happen. And they're right. We're completely wrong. You were completely wrong. Yeah, it was. We, we Everyone underestimated the market. Far larger. And, it, and so, I mean, in the early development of the business, it sounds like, you know, there's two sides to this marketplace that you were starting to build. And I don't know if you used that language at the time. And publishers were early as your customer. And you were doing something like an evangelistic sale to them about the Internet's going to be huge. Let us help you make some money from this website your boss made you put up and drive some additional revenue from the ads that we will somehow fill. Was that the leg you got down on the ground first? Sort of. And it is funny because we, we didn't think, we didn't use the word marketplace. In fact, it just kind of occurred to me that we actually were one of the first marketplaces out there, but as well as um, we didn't use the word SaaS. I don't think SaaS existed, but I think we were one of the early SaaS companies as well. You know, most of the people that we were pitching on the publisher side were not media companies there because media companies had not really embraced the internet at all. They were really kind of schlocky websites. Oh, yeah. Cool side of the day. Um, the I problem used to have was that in my bookmarks. Yeah, exactly. So, but the problem, the bigger problem, was convincing advertisers that they should, you know, pay attention to this medium because it was just it was yeah. so small. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I mean, so okay, you you go to the schlocky guys, and it was easy because they're like, yes, thank you for calling me and giving me some attention, promising me money. That sounds amazing. And I guess did you actually promise them any money, or did you just do a deal and share whatever revenue you were going to collect? The history of DoubleClick is a little complicated. So we started doing the technology in our basement, in my basement in uh, Alpharetta, the fall of, of uh, 1995. I discovered that there's another company that was going to do something identical, and it was called DoubleClick. 
and there was four people selling. They were a division out of Poppy Tyson, which is owned by BJ Candy, a big advertising company. And they were selling, they had the, uh, the broker rights to sell advertising on network, uh, Netscape and Excite and a couple of other sites. They were already selling. Uh, they were the largest media sales force, four people, but they were selling four a people. lot of media. And we had the technology and they announced their product, this vast network, but they didn't have any technology. It was total made up. So our company name was Internet Advertising Network. We came together, our four people merged with their four people. DoubleClick was a better name, so we kept DoubleClick. So oh, they how brought you carve those guys out of a of a big group. That must have been a tricky deal to pull off so early in your life. I mean, it was you and, and Dwight who, I guess, at this point are titans, but at that point we're in a basement. So it was actually, you know, Dave Carlick uh, and Tom Wharton were sort of heading that group up. Dave Carlick is a very visionary guy. He really wanted to build out this network, but he knew he didn't have technology. So. The actual merger was very quick and easy. Is Grant Gregory and I sitting in a room in Hartford? I forget where we were. No, somewhere in Connecticut during a snowstorm, and you know, within a matter of two days, hammered out a deal. They needed the technology. There was no way they were going to get the technology. We needed the uh, advertising sales expertise and money. And they had contracts and revenue in hand that they would not be able to deliver unless they put it on your servers. I guess you had written some servers well, that could serve ads. So. Ironically, none of those customers ever joined the DoubleClick network. They were not interested in the technology, but they knew that the only way to really grow their media business was to have this technology. In fact, Netscape and Excite, they were all very, especially Netscape, was very prima donna. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they're the smartest kind of guys a, in the room and they don't need anyone else's stuff. It's not invented here. It was a little known fact that their most profitable business was their advertising business. That they, I think we were doing like $10 million, selling $10 million they had no technology. They weren't reporting on anything. It was a disaster. 96. You're talking about 1996? or 96. After. I, I mean, because, you know, the, the sort of like verbatim accounts from those who were there, whether it's Andreessen or Horace or, or whoever else was hanging around. I mean, it was crazy, right? I mean, they would certainly agree that things were crazy at the time, but they wouldn't we, use your technology. No. In fact, it's ironic when we were repitching the business I won't say who it was, but their business strategy was they wanted us to go in and sell Netscape servers and systems and advertising to the CIO. And I'm like, CIO, chief information officer does not buy advertising. That's not the way companies work. It was just very much like, you don't get the vision. You're not you know, advanced enough for us. So, so they, they resigned our account <laughs> and it was the best thing that ever happened. It was good. It's hilarious. I mean, clearly there would have been some level of uh, competitive and ego contest among so many companies at that time. And of course, Netscape was the doyen of the age. But in the yes. fullness of time, the business you guys built is like, I don't know, 50 or 100 times more important in its current operating revenue and consequence, I suspect. I mean, today, DoubleClick inside its, uh, its sort of Google parent must be a third, half? Where would you ballpark the importance of DoubleClick inside Google's ad revenue monopoly? I mean, I've been told it's it was the best acquisition they ever did. It's a many multi-billion dollar product. I mean, their search advertising revenue is, you know, 90% of all their profits and, and revenue. But yeah, no, it's it's important, and which is great. I'm, I'm glad it's, you know, they've done a great job with it. The 1996 vision, though, I want to investigate a little bit more with you. And I guess it's not too often that people are taking you all the way back to that that sort of first year or two, because I want to sort of inspect the way you saw things. And you have a very pragmatic bent. I mean, maybe just had a step-by-step -step mindset at the time. 
but it's come so far and changed so much. And I, and I wonder, what was your outlook then and how did it evolve as uh, you got from December 15 to January 16 to June 16, uh, sorry, 96, 95, 96? I mean, I had done a company before, started the first company right out of college, right in college, built that for 10 years. So all bootstrapped with Bill Miller called ICC. So I had a very sort of, you know, school of hard knocks, building building a software company from scratch and, you know, staying in business through ups and downs. So I was very, very pragmatic and never really bought into the, I always thought that this whole new economy concept was 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 ridiculous. I mean, just the way people phrase a new economy, you know, it's it's all the same economy. Uh, it was just more efficient. You know, it's. I see. I see. As a, like all the rules being deleted from people's rule books was an absurd notion of the time and a bit of a, a bubble era. Yeah, it became. You know, people were counting. Uh, you know, uh, what's your profit before expenses? You know, that was kind of the. Kind of the <laughs> um, you know, giving away. You know, we're going to give away all of our products and make it up on volume. Just nonsensical uh, stuff. So, you know, we took a very pragmatic approach. We knew we had to, you know, provide a great product. Uh, but the real competition was how do you expand? You know, we had to grow the internet pie. Uh, we had to grow. We had to make internet advertising a, a legitimate medium. So it had to draw dollars away from TV and print. You know, we originally went at the TV and that was not successful. Now, I mean, now it's successful with video advertising, but, but it was really the print uh, that took it on the on the chin for me, and, and, and with performance as your primary application, right? I mean, click-through race. You know, ironically, our big inspiration for what we were doing was American Airlines. doesn't make any hmm. sense, but, but I'll explain it to yeah. you. Uh, I forget the guy's name. He was a brilliant guy who came up with frequent flyer miles, and you have to Google it. But, uh, but he also came up with the concept of um, uh, yield management, that an airline seat is a, is a perishable good. And advertising is the same. You know, if there's a... An advertising spot that's empty—that's lost revenue forever. And that model became, you know, hugely influential in pretty much every industry. And so we looked at it as, okay, our goal is to sell 100% of advertising and to segment it out uh, to be as valuable as possible, but to sell 100% of it. This was your argument in in this early innings, like 95 to 2000, to to get publishers to switch or to get advertisers to switch their share of spend for everybody that you know it's a carve up the cow that you know you turn the you get the new york strips and you got the hooves being used in gelatin you know it's in jello mm-hmm. so just really making um you know pitching performance advertising to, to performers direct response pitching um you know brand advertising to the branders yeah, and then for publishers the, the sort of sequence of bowling pins that you kicked over uh, you it would have been tough to go get, you know, Coca-Cola Pure Brand as your first one, I suppose, right? Like, where would you have said is the beachhead that got you rolling and what came after that? The beachhead was, in fact, the traditional advertisers, traditional publishers were always a tough sell. And, and branding is still a difficult one for the Internet outside video. But it was really what saved us was the massive amount of venture capital and public funding money that came into internet companies. I mean, internet companies were their products run online, obviously. Um, you most average, you know, easier to click on an ad and go buy something than it is to, you know, watch something and then go go to your computer. So it was really with tech. It was all, all tech. Startups all were spending internet. all their money with you. People would go and, you know, part of their funding deal was that they had to go sign a advertising deal with Netscape or us. You know, we'd sign an advertising deal with anyone right, with money. Yeah. And so the music kept playing, I suppose, until 2000. And at that point, you were a public company, a very important one with a lot of reach and a lot of revenue. And as a pragmatic guy that, you know, came up in, I guess, Detroit and 
spend 10 years without venture capital in your prior company, the world collapses around dot-com. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it's probably, what was it, the summer of 2000? Yeah, April. April, yeah. 70% of the customers are going out of business. I remember going to the, if you remember, Jason Kalkanis ran Silicon Valley Reporter. Oh, yeah. And they always had the top 100 companies. I remember going, and it was always like this big celebration, like, you know, who made it? And that year, it was like going to a funeral. It was so despairing. You know, they took the picture, and everyone goes, everyone like turns to us, hey, do you guys got a job? Uh, We're unemployed. It was brutal. Just so many companies uh, went out of business. And and that's what KR, Kevin Ryan, took over, which I'd love to say was, you know, brilliant timing on my part. (laughs) I got to ride. (laughs) When did he get the the privilege of of running DoubleClick? Was it literally as? I think it was the summer. Pouring down the streets. Probably maybe, I think maybe he had a month a month uh, ahead. And I remember there wasn't a, the dot-com crash was unfortunately a very long and prolonged crash. You know, there was like yeah. a sudden drop, you know, drop 40%. Everyone's like, okay, that's it. And then drop another 40%, you know, just kept going down. Our stock dropped, I think, 95% from the peak. But most companies that dropped 100%. So Ryan was, you know, much better at that, at handling that transition. Well, I mean, he had to fire a lot of people. Yes, which I've never, I mean, I guess I was chairman at the time, so I had some culpability. But uh, now, of course, most of those people who got laid off went on to do Google, Facebook, did all sorts of, probably made more money in those companies. I did extremely well. I think most of the Facebook advertising products were built by XDoubleClick people. So getting a job at XDoubleClick was, was pretty easy. Oh, yeah. I mean, the tribe, there's much to discuss on the alumni that were created. But in that in that moment in 2000 and 2001, I mean, it's an extended period of like a rolling thunder of, of just bad shit. I mean, it starts with dot-com, of course, with the general market and, you know, even some of the most uh, canonical companies like, you know, are, were all in, in heavy decline. And then there was 9-11 not so long after that. And it was yeah. like a multi-year recession. And in that year, I guess you'd already been through everything, but you couldn't have been prepared to be through that. Like how close were you to the carnage inside your business? It must have been tremendously stressful, but is it comparable to day zero at the company when you don't have any money or day 100 when you're missing payroll or day 300 when, you know, some important customer blows up on you? Like, give me like a, a way to contextualize the level of, of personal trauma. It's probably in January of 2000. I remember sitting in a conference room with Kevin Ryan. I just turned to him. I said, I go, this has been too easy. I'm telling you, the shit's going to hit the fan and it's going to hit hard. That's what we're really going to try ourselves as a company because, you know, part of it was uh, every place you went, I was traveling a lot and every magazine, like the front cover was, you know, internet, internet this, internet that. And I think Kevin and I had just made the, you know, W Magazine's top, you know, 50 people to have lunch with. And I'm like, we're, it's over. <laughs> it's over, man. Like I'm like the 50 least interesting people to have lunch with. This isn't real. So I don't know. If, I don't know if it was prophetic or, or just um, pathetic, but it, it definitely knew something was coming. You know, it was tough. You know, our original product, the DoubleClick Network, we ended up shutting down, spinning off. It just was never. You know, the technology was really the the valuable part of the business. It was depressing. You know, seeing people that you worked with for many many years having to to let go. Um, I don't think any of them ever blamed us, or yeah, but they understood. That, you know, they looked around. There's something that happened. It wasn't just us. It was the entire industry. It's tough to go from a, you know, everyone's doing great to, you know, so many people were just wiped out financially, wiped out. You know, there's people, for example, that had exercised their options to to uh, oh, you know, get, get their one year 
uh, clock ticking and no one knew about this AMT. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh my God. And the tax. Yeah. You know, people went from, you know, being multimillionaire, let's say five, $10 million to bankrupt. I mean, not owing the IRS, but because they already paid the IRS, IRS took their money. Um, yeah. Just, yeah. Just, being, yeah, just all, all the cash in your bank wired to the IRS because you were hoping to save tax later. And then your stock ends up at, at zero. Yep. Or five cents or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the trauma, I, it's like, because uh, people, you know, in the conversation we're having and from time to time, I presume you talk to folks about uh, the great glories of your successes, you know, and it's very rare that um, entrepreneurs are interrogated a little bit on like how tough it is. And people have the tiniest violins, of course, for those of us who have built giant companies when we complain, oh, it's really miserable, it's really tough. But that is like a uniquely difficult situation that you traveled through. And did it, like, are you different? Have you done it all differently since then? I mean, you, you were just saying you left New York, basically, uh, 12 months after the crash started. I'm not a financial guy. So uh, I think what a lot of trap that we all fell into was that I think at one time, Double Creek was valued at $15 billion. You know, we had $100 million of revenue. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. But relatively speaking, you know, there's other companies that were valued at $30 billion that, you know, had less revenue and less impressive. So people start doing relative valuations of, of importance. On the flip side, I was never really certain, you know, I, I kind of sold stock, you know, up and down. It didn't really matter. I just I diversified a bit as time went on. I just remember the old saying, you know, bears and bulls make money and pigs get slaughtered. And, you know, there was a lot of greed in the time, but it was also a lot of, most of us were just true believers. You know, I talked to somebody that, that was worth $800 million at one time and lost it all. Zero. <laughs> I guess I never wanted to be that guy. I always thought it'd be better to, but I never really thought it was real. Uh, if anything, one of the reasons I probably left New York was a bit of the, you know, people are always very kind saying the money didn't change you, but I, I think money does begin to change you and it changes people. And that's the one part I probably like the least about, and there's going to be no small violence for that comment, but it's, <laughs> I think, yeah, God. money doesn't make you happy as I'm sure you know. Yeah, I guess you saw the worst of it before the crash is another way to put it. It's like in this unreal world of New York in 97, 98, 99, you know, fabulous IPO on NASDAQ and whatever else is happening for you. You just met all the the worst parts of people's character. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I, I'm, well, I'm sure that I probably help propagate it to some uh, extent. You know, you try yeah. to stay, stay humble and quiet, but, you know, there was a bit of and look, it, it, what other companies were doing, probably in the pale of things, we were far, far, far less, but it, it got out of hand. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, 
that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. You move to the sunshine of Santa Barbara around that time and start working on your book, The Map of Innovation. Uh, I think so. I really wanted to move someplace where the weather suited my clothes and to focus more on my, <laughs> on my family. I'd spent 20 years, you know, just work, 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 work. And I really just wanted to, I needed a break. I was burned out, seriously burned out. So I was approached by Harvard Business Press wanting me to write a book. I kept saying no. And, and then when I left the CEO, I was like, okay, I got, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I read a book. Took I think it took me longer to get that book published than it took to build Eyes Double Click. So, really? meaning to sit a, down and write it, or the whole editing and publication the whole, process. The, the whole process. It was the most painful process ever. And the book <laughs> releasing a book on startups in 2003. Uh, I, uh, not exactly a large market opportunity at that moment. And, but I mean, it, and, it's a kind of a bitter irony because some of the biggest, most valuable companies were founded in that those dark days of 030405. And they were, they were. And if you had put, you know, a thousand bucks in you know, Amazon at that time, you would have destroyed it. Yeah. And so um, I guess there's like a, I don't know. I mean, there's a sort of period of restoration and reflection that you travel through at this point. And you don't seem to draw like a causal line to the trauma or maybe you did. I mean, you did all these amazing things. You have to go through all this shit. You're like, fuck it. I want to change everything. You do. You write a book. You're an investor in companies. And then these last couple of years, you're sort of back in the game directly running a business or you just I guess you just sold it a company yeah. Like a yeah. yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about when you decided to actually start and run a company again after this period of repose right I mean you had done it a couple different ways and then there's like a pretty substantial gap from 01 until I guess 2013 where you're an investor advisor consultant you're teaching you're writing you're am I right yeah so I was still involved with double click but I was not working by any stretch of imagination full-time once I left the CEO. So I was focusing on, you know, I went from running a, a large public company to coaching five-year-old girls in soccer, my daughter's soccer team. And uh, <laughs> I, I remember they, if they didn't listen to me, I'd make them like do push-ups and sit-ups and all the mothers looking at me like, this guy's completely insane. And so I was also doing venture investing and but it just intellectually, I was not working enough. I was not, and, and I, coming back to the same problem of, you know, I love what Kayak was doing, but I thought the vertical search could be done for a, a hundred different areas. And that, you know, could you create one technology to, to do any kind of vertical search engine? And, and you could, you could abstract the problem and do vertical search for, you know, best dog to buy, best, uh, what medical school to go to, uh, ski resorts. I mean, it, it didn't really matter if you had the data, you could help people make complicated you know, highly considered purchases. And I knew from my advertising days, like media companies are tough, but search or comparison engine advertising is gold. And so nobody else was doing it. I didn't really want to do another company. I really didn't want to go back and work 80 hours a week. But the reality is it's, I just love that obsession. Um, that's the thing you don't get with venture, but uh, I just love to get singularly obsessed with something. But I also know what that does to me mentally. <laughs> it's uh, probably, I don't know, I get very manic for, let's say, 10 years. That seems to be my cycle, uh, 10 years for a startup. <laughs> well, on this one, you found yourself selling the company before 10 years were up. Yeah, it was like eight years or nine years, so it was, it was pretty close. It actually came out to about 10 oh, years. 
Oh, really? Close. When you jump back in from like, you know, 09 onward running, it, it was called Graphic, or did you start it out by calling it Find the Best? Find the Best. Yeah. Yeah, Find the Best. Find the best. When you jump back in, did you do it the same way that you had done it in the early days of DoubleClick? I mean, you sort of, yeah, I mean, your story about being gripped by the idea, I presume you were surveying what you thought were the big, broad changes in market opportunities. You had your list of ideas, and then this one sounded good, and you remember why it was a good idea, and then you started building some. I mean, like, what was different? on your third go? You know, at this one, I was more content with building it slowly and more methodically and more, and just doing it, like balancing life and, and uh, work better. Yeah, I'm mean, just an example. I mean, I, I go to work every day in basketball shorts and a t-shirt. You know, we took an hour and a half at lunch to go play. You know, we play basketball or play soccer or CrossFit or something. You know, we just, it's mm-hmm. more of a, a little bit less intense. So it suited you better. Would you recommend it? Is that what you'd tell other founders to do? Like, did it work? You think it was the best way? A lot of things go into the success of the company. I'd say this one was actually, the outcome was, you know, people see Amazon buy you, think, think it's a massive number. I mean, it was, it was okay. It was good. I love the way the whole business turned out, and I, I definitely do not regret doing it. But probably made some mistakes I shouldn't have made, primarily just depending on Google, Google for all, all our traffic, uh, which was a big problem. They turned you um, off at some point? Algorithm? Panda? Something like that? Yeah, it was exactly. It was Panda. We switched. We were going, you know, helping 30 million people a month make huge decisions to 15 million people. So it was kind of ironic. In the end, we were actually building this unbelievable technology. We were building the world's largest knowledge graph that ultimately became really important for um, personal assistance, uh, which was a contrarian way of, of going about it. People didn't appreciate well, didn't what we see. were doing. They didn't see the no. assistance coming either, right? But all of a sudden, you answer that question about the rainfall in Seattle. I mean, is that you're powering that in Alexa? Exactly. But most people, the way they approach that, the personal assistant was, hey, let's create, let's use AI or let's scrape answers. They didn't believe that. They didn't quite understand that in order to get great data, you have to go out and get great data and you have to organize it in a knowledge structure graph. It. It structure it in a semantic way. It's hard work. And so I think everyone started off saying our way is not the way to do it. And then they all came back to our way is probably the only way to do it. Yeah, I guess this has been, I don't know if it's exactly a decade, but like the semantic web was supposed to happen and uh, it did. But at the beginning, no one thought it could happen, right? I mean, like basically the technology didn't work. They they had these raw Google style ways of just aggregating and indexing that didn't seem to have structure to them. And I guess you bet right on, Yes, it's possible. Well, the Hispanic web never really happened primarily because what people forget is that really good data is really expensive and hard to obtain. Like people don't want, you know, you can see some of the tension going on now between Google and when I'm with us as well, you know, where they're pulling the answer from the website and displaying it in their, in their search engine. So people don't have to click through, right? The symbiotic right. relationship between a search engine is, Hey, I give you a little snippet, and but people come to me for the answer. So they start pulling the answers out, and it's like, well, wait a second, yeah. no one's no one's coming to us. So people compile information at great expense, and they don't expect to give it away for free. Yeah, well, I guess to call it the semantic web is my error. Uh, it didn't happen no, no. in a web page. It happens yeah. inside other people's apps, right? I mean, a search in Amazon is not just a raw text match of uh, you know all the sneakers. 
quite some logic has been provided in structuring the way that information is presented or inside, you know, the Airbnb app on iOS. This is structured information and data that is, you know, gathering a vast universe uh, that, yeah, I guess Google never gets to see. But what do you think is like the next big uh, secular wave since you have made a business of predicting them and then mining them? It's always tough because every, it's usually every 10 years something big comes along you know, it was mobile. It was, you know, PCs, the internet, networking, mobile. You know, we're seeing a ton of stuff, of course, in AI. I've had to really beef up on my AI, even though I guess we were kind of doing, we used to debate a lot what we were doing AI at, at Graphic. Um, <laughs> I think everyone doing anything sufficiently advanced could have been relabeled AI in the last exactly. year. Exactly. No one would notice. Exactly. But sort of the sort of true deep learning stuff, you know, it's still a lot of hype, overhype, but starting to see some pretty interesting stuff in that area. Yeah, I think 5G is going to, it's going to change the world. Yeah, I think all the self-driving, you know, I mean, from a societal thing, I think the whole autonomous driving is going to really upset the world. But on the AI side, people are way, 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 way over forecasting its capabilities. And, you know, people worried about, you know, we're going to have ethics committees and, you know, it's going to take over. It's so far out. Generalized AI is not going to happen. I will not be alive for that to happen. Oh, really? We're going to have another AI winter. It won't be as bad as the last one. I mean, the last AI winter, everyone removed it from their resume. They were so embarrassed. <laughs> you know, there's some real stuff going on in AI today. It's not what people think. It's a very narrow solutions. To very Blockchain? Problems. You know, I, I think well, there's two aspects. Like, I think cryptocurrency is going to go down as one of the greatest peer-to-peer Ponzi schemes in history. And people are going to look back and say, how stupid could anyone have been to invest in Bitcoin? Including Bitcoin. You think Bitcoin is going to go to zero? I think it's moronic. You know, it's not a currency. Uh, I just started following what Facebook and the other folks are trying to do with, with Libra. You know, Bitcoin is not a, a currency stores value. Not It doesn't, you know, fluctuate widely like Argentine uh, peso or the Venezuelan money. And it's not an asset because there's just no intrinsic value. It doesn't, it doesn't produce rents or, or profits. It was purely speculative. I just found that to be a scam. Now, blockchain is a technology. I do get a little annoyed. People say, oh, it's, you know, it's the first secure technology. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, we have digital currency. It's called Visa. It's called stocks. It's called <laughs> bonds. I mean, most of our wealth and, and money is not is, is all digital and it's securely handled. Now, is blockchain better? I, I actually don't know. It's expensive. And it's not an area that you're messing around in? No. Three hot areas are cannabis, which I'm not messing around with. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I think blockchain has kind of died off. And cryptocurrencies, a lot of people are going to go to jail over that. So you said of the three hot areas, cannabis, blockchain? Oh, and then AI. AI, so, and yeah. AI, and that one you package like self-driving, I guess. And I suppose 5G, you think, is a layer of, of change across all of them. You know, like if networks are so much faster, self-driving is that much easier, and that much more pervasive, I think it, for example, I think, or AI yeah, compute and data storage. I'll give an example. When we invested in Procore here very early on, so which is project management for construction companies. So I have a big belief that every vertical industry becomes a technology company at some point, you know, it's just like you see in FinTech or what's going on in healthcare. And so uh, invested in that, but the problem there was that uh, there's no Wi-Fi. There didn't used to be Wi-Fi. On a construction site. Construction, construction site. Right. So, yeah. And now, of course, there is. Uh, and that just, you know, the company is exploding. You know, 5G, I think, just opens up a whole new set of possibilities for everyone. And upsets the current, you know, the interesting thing about these disjoints, you know, like the whole thing on net neutrality is was so moronic. You know, the cable companies can be completely upset by 5G competition. Uh, so it was a premature battle 
or an unneeded battle for net neutrality because an entirely new network is about to roll out and replace six lines. I thought net neutrality was the most insane thing that the tech companies got behind. It was idiotic. Inviting the government into our industry uh, to control it, to strip yeah, yeah. private property rights from cable companies who, as a user, I hope they're prioritizing traffic. Oh, really? Like crappy stuff over the schlock websites that used to be your customers? Every company has, whether it's Meraki or some other system, you know, Cisco, they're prioritizing, let's say, voice over video or voice over everything else. Everyone prioritizes network traffic. I mean, you have to. You have a constraint. Mm -hmm. you, you have finite bandwidth. You have to be able to control it. With, you know, with, that, with that, a sort of like a user perspective product decision, right? I thought, exactly. I thought the worry is that when it's not the end user, but it's the upstream ad buyer, you reverse what the user thinks they're paying for. If you remember what the what started all this, it was um, a small percentage of users were using uh, BitTorrent to yeah, steal and using to, all the traffic and yeah. To steal. And, and, yeah. So one yeah. percent of the people were stealing things to give ninety nine percent poor experience. I mean, I would hope, I would hope that they would. You block know. those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, and so while you're calling shorts on things, I, I guess you're long a few of these ideas or at least you know bullish on them and then you're you're pretty short on blockchain. And if we look back in recent memory, I think this whole um the family of BitTorrent related technologies, they didn't end up changing the world. Uh, no. no. The whole peer to peer stuff. Um yeah, I remember I thought that was a really, really interesting area, but couldn't figure out where it could be used in, in good ways. Here's some other stuff, by the way, we brainstormed on, on what we thought were the top sort of technologies. And some of the stuff's not new. You know, so self-driving, everything. I still think online learning, the whole education system is completely messed up. And no one's been able to crack that code yet, but it's coming. It has to. It's such a large Yeah, it's got to, right? It's just a question of when, but there's almost no evidence that the needle has moved, right? Like all the education people get is live and in person. Uh, yeah. And all the rest looks like entertainment. But it's interesting though that there's there's a lot more online going on than people even right. Mm -hmm. It's not it's online learning. It's not necessarily accreditation, and I think the right, accreditation exactly. part is a is a big part. Shared assets. You know, it's funny. In two thousand one, we in fact it was the guy Jeff Lawson who went out to start Twilio. Oh, yeah. uh, he sat at a place out in the Hamptons. And he sat out there in the wintertime, a group of guys, and trying to explore new ideas new technologies. And, and we thought shared assets was really kind of an interesting area. And we totally missed Uber. We totally missed Airbnb. But, uh, <laughs> but you had the idea. <laughs> underutilized. It was the whole underutilized assets. So we talked about, you know, parking cars at, at uh, you know, when you, when you take your car to the airport, no one's using it. Could, could we turn that into something? Nah. Totally. Yeah. There's a dozen billion dollar companies in the car area and then a dozen in the, uh, the sort of like lodging home share area uh, that followed on that observation, I think. Yeah, totally missed it. It used to get a lot more on AR, VR, and I think those are technologies looking for a solution. I think there's going to be some interesting stuff, like especially we're seeing some stuff on like like CBT, sort of mental. Uh, which yeah, is sort kinda, of dealing with, uh, you know, some anxiety or problem or whatever. Yeah, Smoking cessation. Actually, so you're longer on that than you are on some. You're sort of more optimistic because I I consider that the, the part of the recent wreckage of overpromised crappy shit. No, I agree with you there. I, I actually think it's way overpromised. It's a technology in search of a solution. I think there's going to be some interesting solutions that come out of it, but people coming in and pitching AR or VR for its sake, it's kind of like pitching AI for its sake. You know, it's got to have a very specific application, and I haven't seen them. Describe the process and say the website again. You called it a brain 
scrimmage? So it's team teamstormit.com. Teamstormit.com. Yes. To get some insight into the way that the way you do things. In this case, you didn't make a, a book about it. You, you decided to, I guess it wasn't that fun to write the book, huh? So an important part of, probably the most important thing, and I think in Map of Innovation was describing this process that we called BPT, Business Prioritization Technique or something like that. But it's just a, a very simple process to use to solve any problem. That problem could be anything from creating a new product idea, a new company, to determining a strategic plan, to figuring out how do we be a better CEO. So it's it's really a innovation technique to, uh, for forcing innovation for and building a consensus among a group of people. But you're able to do it offline instead of in the room where people kind of converge prematurely. The process of brainstorming isn't really that creative, for example, you know, as the research has. I don't think that's true. There's a important step within brainstorming that people don't do, mm-hmm. which is a method of the way you do it, the, the, how you do it, and then the way you narrow down the ideas. What people fail to do usually is narrow down the ideas. So if you think within well, a company, I, I, there's a hundred things. There's also you, the upfront bit, right? I mean, there's the, the upfront bit that the private ideation, if not done in the group setting, private ideation, perhaps in advance of the session, does generate more net different ideas is one bit from the research. And I guess actually the tool, Team Stormit, exactly addresses that since people are going to submit you know from their phone or their computer a bunch of ideas into the common space instead of having to like do it in front of others you know and then you're pointing out the second bit which is to correctly prune and prioritize those ideas exactly and you are right about the so for 30 years i used to do it on a chalkboard a whiteboard and you are right you still have a problem there's some pros to it because people do hear an idea that spawns another idea the con is that introverted people still won't participate there's still social mm-hmm. pressure but now that we do this online, the number of ideas is ridiculous. Our biggest problem is how do you consolidate similar ideas? It's turning out to be sort of the biggest biggest problem with the with the product. And the product I'm just doing, I, I'm not even sure what we're going to do with it. It's just it's been a lifelong fascination of you know just innovation. How do you force it? How do you make it happen? And most companies don't. You probably do it. You're you've been in this industry your whole <laughs> life. Well, and it's but it's hard to govern a process like that, even if. Uh your kind statement were true that I do. I can't be in every room and I certainly, it takes a lot of work to, to just do it. <laughs> well, that's the great thing about this this process though. It doesn't take work. We've done strategic plans in three hours rather than, you know, three months. Yeah, I, I'm messing around with it right now and I, it, it looks like a, I mean, you could plan a sprint for a product team this way or you could set the agenda for a board meeting or whatever. I mean, it seems like quite a powerful way to generate and prioritize. Idea. Oh, product features for sprints. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what we used to do just all the time. You get all the people that have vested interests. There's already a pretty strong consensus. The problem is just quickly figuring out what that consensus is. So I don't, I like to tell uh, like startups, you know, there's a hundred things you could do. There's only five things that you must do. Startups often spend time, to, you know, they want to do it all. They want to do all hundred things. Yeah. Well, the, and, the visionary founder often overreaches. The curse of the uh, entrepreneur. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for making some time to share your experiences and ideas with the folks that listen to In the Know. Thanks for having me. It was, uh, I don't often look back, so I try to always look forward. So, Yeah, I think I got you squirming a little bit there, but I appreciate <laughs> you very much putting up with it. No problem. <laughs> but it's like such an impressive you know, career already. And back in that moment and whenever it was 1999, when my colleague pointed across a big room on, I think, 33rd Street near 9th Avenue. 
yeah. which was the Devil Click HQ at the time, and said, that's KO over there. Hmm. Uh, well, that's the last time we were uh, at all in proximity. So thank well, you. Thank you. Appreciate it.